good evening, everyone. If you'd like to open in your Bibles, we are in Bamidbar. The book of Numbers. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers, the fourth book in our trek. The fourth book in Torah, Numbers chapter 1, where we're going to pick up immediately and dive right in. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families and by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head from 20 years old and upward, Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And with you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. These then are the names of the men who shall stand with you. I want to ask you as we begin this journey together, who can you count on? Now just take a moment and think about that. Who's on your short list? Who do you number among those you can trust? Those you believe in to be faithful and true and to walk with you and to stand with you and to come alongside you in times where you need help. Who, who do you trust? See, the book of Numbers is only about numbers in as much as it teaches us how to count on the Lord and also how to rely on his people, especially in the wilderness. And that is the key phrase. That's why we're calling this study in the book of Numbers, In the Wilderness. See, we get the title numbers from arithmoi. In the Greek, arithmoi, where arithmetic comes from. But the Greek, the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, chose to name this book arithmoi, but that wasn't the original name. And then, of course, the Latin Vulgate took that, and they called it numeri, numbers. And it can be translated that way because of the census takings that take place in chapters 1 and 26, the listing of offerings in chapter 7. So there are numbers in this book, and there are census takings, but there's a better title. And that title, as I've been telling you, is Bamidbar. Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. That's what the Jewish people call it. That's the Hebrew title of the book, the fifth word in the first sentence, Bamidbar. And to me, it's far more accurate and compelling because that's where we go in this next book of Torah. We head into the wilderness. The book of Exodus, from Egypt to Horeb, spanned one year. Leviticus covered a single month. It may not have felt like it in our study, but that was just one month long. And then, of course, the book of Numbers, now we come to it, from the Mount of God to the edge of promise should have taken 11 days, it took 38 years. But it's just an 11 day trek in the wilderness from Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, on north up to the promised land. We begin in the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, we begin here at Mount Sinai, where we've been for a while, at Mount Sinai, the first 10 chapters, 20 days of final preparation. And of course, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2 tells us it's 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. That's where we get that 11-day count. But there at the border, 
If you know the story, you know they get all the way to the edge of the promised land, right on the precipice of promise, and they shrink back in fear and faithlessness, and they will wander the wilderness for another 38 years. And that's chapter 11 all the way then to the end of the book. It's a journey, or actually chapter 14, chapter 15 to the end of the book. It's a journey of divine provision and human grumbling. It's a a trek of failing hearts and famous courage, of rebellions and snakes and battles and blessings and prophecy and passion and conquest. It's all in this book. And we will end up right back at the border. Let me give you a basic outline. And if you'd like to follow this as we're studying through or just just for uh, getting an overview of the book, here's what it looks like. Part one, a five-part outline for Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. Chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 10, is preparing to depart. So we stay at Sinai for the next 10 chapters, and we'll move rather quickly through it. But 10 chapters, chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 10, preparing to depart. Then from chapter 10, verse 11, all the way through chapter 12, is passage to the promise. Passage to the promise. Then chapter 13 through chapter 19, what I'm calling at the precipice of the promise. So they're on the edge of the promised land and many things happen there. Many tragic things. Well then chapter 20 to chapter 22, verse 1, the passage to the plains of Moab. Finally, chapter 22, verse 2 through chapter 26, I'll repeat this quickly. Chapter 22, verse 2 through the end of the book, prophecies, perils, and partings. So again, chapter 1 through chapter 10, preparing to depart. Chapter 10, verse 11 through chapter 12, passage to the promise. Chapter 13 to chapter 19, at the precipice of the promise. Chapter 20, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 1, passage to the plains of Moab. And finally, chapter 22, verse 2, all the way to the end, chapter 36, prophecies, perils, and partings. Does that sound like basic math? (laughs) It shouldn't. This is an exciting study. And even when we get to the very end of the book, understand, we're not out of the wilderness yet. It's kind of like the end of The Empire Strikes Back, you know? It just leaves you hanging. You're like, what? They're stopping here? And so I ask you again, who can you count on? And who do you trust? Because it is not lost on me. And I talked about this a bit on Sunday, that we are in an in a season, in a time, here at the end of the age that is very much a wilderness time, I believe, for the church. There's a lot of wandering going on and a lot of wondering what's going on. And and the church is either going to rise or it's going to fall. People are either going to stand and be counted and named as those belonging to the Lord or they're going to shrink back to destruction. We are in a difficult time, a wilderness time. Who do you count on? Who do you trust? We were talking about this earlier this morning. I am so thankful for the word of God because for all of the mistruths and lies and deceptions and, and, and confusions out there, this is true. This is, I can count on this. It doesn't matter what politicians are saying. I know what this says. It doesn't matter what people in culture claim. I know what this says. Do we stand on this as true? I count on the word of God as as absolute. But there are also people in my life 
that I count on. Oh, I count on the Lord. But there are those around me that I, I find from time to time I need to lean on. I, I need to ask. I need to seek out for, for wisdom and counsel, for prayer. People that I trust. Who do you trust? Israel in the wilderness needed to learn not only to count on God. And I think we consider that. That's an obvious one as you go through Torah. Learning to trust their God and Father. But there's also an amount of learning to count on each other. Which is how the whole book begins. And speaking of Israel in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says familiarly, these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So a quick read through Numbers through Bamidbar and you find out quickly, you can count on the people of God to fail. I'm going to say that one more time with a smile on my face. You can count on the people of God to fail. They will. Many times over in this book and in this life and in the church. And some of the worst wounds and deepest disappointments come when church people fail you, fail me. Don't really want to talk about the times I fail church people. That's really beside the point. It's when I feel like those around me fail me. And they do. So what do you do? Who do you count on? And by the way, I don't say that by way of condemnation of the church. I've said so many times over the years, I love the church. So I don't sit in condemnation because when I say the church is going to fail you, I am the church. So are you. And we are all capable of letting each other down in the wilderness. So it's not a matter of condemnation. And by the way, it's also not an excuse or a cop-out for when we do fail. No, I say that the people of God will fail each other from time to time because we must recognize our sins and our failures for the sake of personal conscience, but also for the sake of compassion for each other. That I can look out at the people of God and understand when I have been failed, when someone hurts me, I can say, you know what? I'm just as capable. When I'm in that frame of mind, it's a whole lot easier to forgive because I have failed others. And when I recognize my fallibility, then my compassion extends to the fallibility of my brothers and my sisters. And so Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that wasn't new. But it was new because he added, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another the way I have unconditionally, without fail. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. How you doing with that? Galatians 6 verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 15.1, we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And that nails you coming and going. If you think you're strong, you need to bear up. And if you're weak, you need the help of the strong. And the reality is we are all strong and we are all weak depending on the circumstance. The bottom line is how are we caring one for another? As we journey in the wilderness... Brothers and sisters, in the church, we must have grace as an essential in our backpacks. 
Not only the grace of God for us, but God's grace through us for each other. To have grace and compassion and understanding for each other, especially as we go into the wilderness because that's when you get cranky. When it's challenging and difficult. And again, as much as we rely on the grace of God, we're going to need to be able to name the ones who stand with us in Christ before the end comes. So picking up in verse 5, these then are the names of the men who shall stand with you. I like that. Here are their names. The Lord is still speaking. Of Reuben, Elidzer, the son of Sheduer, uh, of Shimon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerishadai, of Judah, Nachshon, the son of Aminadab, of Issachar, Netanel, the son of Zuar, of Zebulun, Eliab, son of Halan, of the sons of Joseph, that is of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amichud, and of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, of Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai, of Dan, Ahietzer, the son of Amishadai, of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okran, of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deul, of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Anan, these are they who were called of the congregation, the leaders of their father's tribes. They were the heads of the divisions of Israel. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name and they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month. And then they registered by ancestry in their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. You read this first list of names here, and you need to recognize that people are named in the Bible for at least three reasons. There may be others, but there are three that, that stand right out. The first reason is an historical reason. They're just there. They just happen to be part of what's going on, and so they're named because they happen to be present from Adam to Abraham to Agabus. People just named because they're part of the story. Not for good or for ill, just there, historical. The second reason why people are named in the Bible is an honorable reason. Honorable mention in the scripture, to me that's huge. Moses, Joshua, David. How about Hebrews chapter 11 that goes through the hall of the faithful and all those names given there. What a remarkable list and what an amazing thing to be so honored as to have your name placed in scripture as an honorable position for all time. Historical, honorable, and dishonorable. Cain, Jeroboam, Jezebel. Or how about those two unfortunate sisters who just couldn't get along, Yodia and Suntuke? Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul has to call them out, and they are forever the sisters in argument. Would you like to be one of them, ladies? Named in Scripture because you couldn't get along with your sister in the Lord. Or people like Demas, 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul says, Demas, who having loved this present world, deserted me. Sad, sad commentary, a dishonorable mention in the Bible. Now you're going to hear all three kinds of names in this book as we go through it. Historical, they just happen to be there. 
honorable, special mentions, and then dishonorable. And God calls these men, these 12 guys, verses 5 through 15, calls them out by name to lead. To lead his people. Alongside Moses and Aaron, these are your leaders, he says. And honor, history, or dishonor, it'd be totally up to them. Whether they just happen to be there in the congregation, or they happen to be serving in such a way that they are honorable mentions, or they bring dishonor on themselves and on their house, that's up to them. And I, I do wonder sometimes if you, if I were named in Scripture, if we found our names in Scripture, how would we be named? Would it be an honorable mention? An historical mention? You just happen to be there. Would it be dishonorable? We're going to come back to these guys on Sunday, but listen, not one of these named individuals will survive the journey. As a matter of fact, when it comes to their greatest test of leadership, about two months down the line from this point, near the very end of the wilderness, all 12 of these guys are going to fail in their calling. They will fail the people. They will fail the Lord. They will shrink back. In fact, another way to organize this book is you could just split it into two parts. You know, I gave you five, which kind of follows the journey through, but, but you can just do it in two parts if that's easier for you. Part one, chapter one through 25, the end of the old generation, and part two, chapter 26 through the end of the book, the birth of a new generation. Because something interesting happens. Both chapters one and 26 contain a census. Both of them, and, and at the beginning of the census taking that the Lord requires, 12 names are given. What's interesting is the number at the end, the number in chapter 26 given of all those taken in the census, that is all the young men from the ages of 20 to 60 who are able to go to war for Israel is going to be just 2,000 less than the number we're going to see here in just a minute in this first chapter. Both begin with a census. Uh, the number's pretty close, 603 550, 603,550 at first, and then about 601,000. So they're down 2,000 people, but when it's such a large number, that's actually pretty close. But the other thing that's different is the names are all changed because these names are all dead or will have all died out. The names given in chapter 26 are now the next generation who have come up. And they're the ones who are going to go into the promised land. The names are changed not to protect the innocent. <laughs> it's a new generation. But it was the job of these who are counted as leaders to be trustworthy to follow. And I think I mentioned this on Sunday, but the Apostle Paul said, follow my example as I follow Christ. And that is the basis for following any human being. Without that basis, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you listen to. If they're following Jesus, you're probably good to go. If they're following their own desires or some other mode or method, be careful. See, it's not just about who you can count on. It's about who is counting on you. And this is a truism as we are in the wilderness as the church. Every single one of us are leading at some level, at some point. And you may think, no, not me. Oh, someone's watching you. 
Could be a grandkid. Could be a, a sister. Could be a mother or a father. Could be a friend. Are you trustworthy to follow? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul is writing to the entirety of the church at Ephesus, which you can then expand out to the entirety of the church. Live a life worthy of the calling. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, to this end we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. If you're following Jesus, you've been called. Are you worthy of that calling? Are you living a life worthy of it? Paul says live that way and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's counting on you? And are you trustworthy to follow well, in verse 20, continuing on, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's household, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500 of the sons of Shimon. Their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, their number of men according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war, their number of men of the tribe of Shimon were 59,300. Of the sons of Gad, look at verse 25, their numbered men of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. And then there's Judah, verse 27. Their numbered men of the tribe of Judah, 74,600. And then there's Issachar, verse 29. Of the numbered men of the tribe of Issachar, 54,400. The next tribe is Zebulun. Verse 31 says, their numbered men of the tribe of Zebulun, 57,400. Verse 33 speaks of Ephraim. The numbered men of the tribe of Ephraim, 40,500. And then Manasseh, verse 35, 32,200. And then Benjamin, verse 37, 35,000. 400. I told you we were going to move through this quickly. Verse 39, of the tribe of Dan, 62,700 were numbered as they're going through this census. Verse 41 tells us of the tribe of Asher, 41,500. And then down in verse 43, of the tribe of Naphtali, 53,400. Verse 44, these are the ones who were numbered whom Moses and Aaron numbered with the leaders of Israel, 12 men, each of whom was of his father's household. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's households from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, even all the numbered men were, get this number, 603,550, and the census was completed. 603,550 men Age 20 and upward, and, and we can draw a line at 60 because over 60 they were not counted on to go out to war. So the 20 to 60 year old men of Israel counted in this 603,550. Some hear that number and they go, come on, come on. Back in that day, 
in the ancient times, that many men? 603,550 in the wilderness? Come on. That's got to be blown up. Maybe we just need to take away a zero. 60,355, maybe. But 603,550, listen, you add women, teens, children, and senior citizens, and you easily have two and a half million people. Probably more, probably approaching three million Israelites moving in mass, encamped around Sinai, but now going to take this in mass 11-day journey to the promised land. Crazy. That is a huge caravan of migrants. Think about the southern border of the United States. And we hear about these migrant caravans rolling up toward the borders. We have never had three million people show up on the borders at one time. That's a huge number. And because it's so big, there are those who just don't buy it. They tend to be in the camp that think the Bible is filled with allegory and metaphor. And, and you just got to pick what you want and what you don't. You know, I, I want you to recall, I, I said a couple of Sundays ago, the Oregon Education Department, do you remember I mentioned this? Have a special course that they want for teachers of math to learn about racism in mathematics. Because if you say there's only one right answer, that's white supremacy. And that's the extent of the insanity of our cancel culture and of our political correctness. We're so far beyond political correctness, it's crazy. But it's the same kind of mentality. You can't say there's just one right answer in mathematics. And here in the book of Numbers, to say 603,550, it's just too much. The Bible Knowledge Commentary addresses this. It says the problem from the human standpoint is obvious. How could such millions have gotten organized, maintained their cohesion, and traveled through deserts, frequently on narrow routes, and difficult terrain? And that's the problem. Did you hear the quote? From a human standpoint. From a human standpoint is always the problem. Anything we approach from a human standpoint, we are cutting ourselves off before we even begin. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. From a human standpoint? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why would we doubt him? Hey, from a human standpoint, I get it. Like we already talked about, we are capable of letting each other down. But from a divine perspective? Listen, anytime we dispute scripture from a human standpoint, we dismiss the hand of God. You need to approach scripture from the author's perspective. And understand that God is who he says he is and does what he says he did. And what he says he's going to do. And he perfectly follows through. Do you not think, for those who think, well, maybe it's scribal error over time. Do you not think God, who is God of the universe and created something from nothing in this world and is almighty and all powerful, can keep his word? I mean, keep it together. Maintain its integrity. You think that's such a hard thing for God 
of whom Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. God answers him, Jeremiah 32, verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? I think about Jesus coming down the Mount of Transfiguration after having just spoken with Moses, by the way, and Elijah, and he's with Peter and James and John, and they come down the mountain. What are they met with at the base of the mountain? They're met with a quarrel, an argument. The scribes quarreling with the apostles. And in the midst of this, all this ridiculous arguing, Jesus says, what's going on? And a voice from the crowd says, it's about my son. My son who is possessed. And he has a demon that throws him into the fire or throws him into the water and he convulses and, and I don't know what to do. His son is there. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I asked your apostles if they could do this. And they didn't. So of course the scribes and apostles are arguing because they failed. And the man says, if you can do anything to help us, please. And Jesus said, if Anything is possible to those who believe. And the man cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's where we need to go. Help my unbelief. Because when I read about who God is and what God has accomplished, there's no problem there. It's just from a human standpoint that there's an issue. Hey, he's got the whole world in his hands. I think he can manage an itinerant convoy of Israelites. By the way, Scripture corroborates Scripture. Some nine months earlier, God called for a, another census, a previous census, for the purpose of collecting atonement money. Back in Exodus 38, verse 26, it says, A beka ahead, that's half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20, year old, 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. Same exact number. And the Scripture does that. It gives us support from book to book and precision to precision. So this numbering takes place, yielding again the same result, 20 years old and upwards, 603,550. But what's the purpose? Before we get beyond it, stop and think about it. What was the purpose of this numbering that begins this journey into the wilderness? It's not about taxes. It's not about voting precincts. It's not about even organization. 14 times in the first 46 verses of chapter 1, we hear the same phrase. Whoever is able to go out to war. This is a military numbering. This is the number of men who could be counted on to fight. And God has them do this numbering, not because that's where their strength is. Their strength is with the Lord, as we'll see very clearly. But he has them do this count so that they will know who they can count on. They will know who's called up. God is preparing them. Get this. Think about this where we're at right now in this season of life. God is preparing Israel for warfare in the wilderness because warfare will find you in the wilderness. There is always warfare in the wilderness. God is now anticipating combat in the canyons, campaign on the plains. They're going to face some tough battles ahead, some that will be wonderfully successful and some that will be horrible failures. 
And the difference is going to be trusting in the Lord. But he says, I want you to see who you can count on, your man who's going to be to the right and to the left, who will stand, who will fight with you. Let me ask you this question. Are you surprised by or are you prepared for warfare? See, Les brings it up all the time. You spend five minutes with Les. We should get a little betting pool going. No, we shouldn't. That would be bad. But, but a friendly bet. How long does it take less to bring up spiritual warfare? Can I just tell you with all sincerity and respect, one of the things that I have loved about walking with Les for 17 and a half years now is he keeps me on track with spiritual things. When I start to forget that there is spiritual warfare, he's there to remind me. When I start to lean on my own understanding, he's there reminding me of the Spirit of God, and, and it's been such a partnership. So I'm not making fun of you when I say that. It is spiritual warfare. And for the most part, many in the church dismiss that as pastoral hype. Oh, yeah, the preacher mentioned spiritual warfare. So, oh, yeah, it's all time. Good idea to gird up, get ready. But, you know, I got a life to live and bills to pay and work to go to. So spiritual warfare, yeah, it's nice to get excited about sometimes. No, this is the reality of going into the wilderness. You will face battles. The church is already back to facing battles. And there are going to be more on the horizon, my friends. It's not going to get easier before the end. Are you surprised when the attacks come? I can't believe that happened. Or are you ready? I am not surprised that happened. See, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our battle. That's our enemy, which reminds me time and time again that my enemy is not lost people. My enemy is not evil individuals in human skin on the earth. My enemy is the one driving them. They are the captive. They are the lost. They need my compassion and grace. But the enemy is out there, and the enemy is real. What was it, not this last Sunday, but a week ago Sunday, when cable just was out. We, we could not live stream. Now, Okay, well, you know, you just had to get Comcast out here to try and figure out what was going on, and they said their stuff was fine, and we looked at our stuff, and it was fine. It's really nice to have a computer genius on staff now. Because <laughs> he nailed down the promise, and nope, all of our stuff is working. It is on the Comcast side. So we had them back out, and they looked at some things, and they go, yeah, well, maybe we'll give you a new modem. And they went out, and they checked their lines running out to the street, trying to figure out what was going on. Weren't ever, we never really got a, an, a solid, clear answer on it. I got an answer for you. The prince of the power of the air. Who does not want things going out from here. Certainly doesn't want the word of God heard across the airwaves. It's spiritual warfare, my friends. Take up, therefore, the full armor of God. So you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. And I'm so tempted. I'm not going to do it. But I'm tempted to go to Ephesians 6 and just study that out. I'd encourage you this week to do that. Be ready for spiritual battles. They're going to come. They already have. More will come. And by the way, the devil doesn't play fair. He will use deception at every single turn. Just when you think, oh, the people of God are gathered together and we're standing up and we look good, he's going to twist the knife and it's going to look like we were at fault. 
Spiritual warfare. By the way, good news, there are no battles in the kingdom. No more war. In fact, Isaiah the prophet, chapter 2. He saw this concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And I love this, they will hammer their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. But we're not in the kingdom yet. Those who would tell you that the church is in the kingdom right now, that is a deceitful message. The church is not in the kingdom. This is not preparing for the kingdom, yes. Citizens of the kingdom, absolutely. We are not in the kingdom, however, for multiple reasons, which we've talked about over the years, and you can go listen to teaching on Revelation 20 to see what the kingdom looks like. Satan bound for a thousand years. That alone tells me we are not in the kingdom right now. Because Satan is not bound. Peter himself says he prowls the earth like a, a roaring lion seeking to devour. So we're not in the kingdom yet. And we can expect and should expect that there is more war in the wilderness. That's not for paranoia, it's for preparation. It's that we would be ready as we go into the wilderness. You can count on battles. But will you be counted on to fight? Will you be ready when it comes? Now, as we've gone through all this, and again, it is a numbering for warfare. It is a preparation of the army of Israel, 603,550 strong. Of course, they were all slaves. <laughs> Not a few years ago, a couple of years back now. So not really the most well-trained and equipped militia, but there's a lot of them, and God is with them. But you may have noticed that of all these 12 tribes listed, one tribe is missing. Well, how can there be a tribe missing when you have 12 tribes? Because the tribe of Joseph is split into Ephraim and Manasseh, which takes up one more. But there's one tribe missing, and you probably know who it is. Want to take a guess? Levi. Levi. Check it out, verse 47. Levi is missing. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. If you think back to the Golden Calf Rebellion that had happened prior, obviously the men of Levi knew how to handle a sword. Because on the day of that rebellion, 3,000 people died by the sword of Levi at the command of the Lord. But even for that, the tribe of Levi was not called to be a warrior tribe. They were not even called to have an inheritance of land. No, they were called to be priests. The priestly tribe of Levi. And as we'll see here in this book, their inheritance, I think it's the best inheritance of all. They don't get a land inheritance. Theirs is the Lord himself. God says, I'll be your inheritance. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, just by way of reminder, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests.
priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We've made that parallel. In fact, many times in the book of Leviticus, the parallel between the priesthood of Israel and the royal priesthood today of the church, that that is our calling. Keep that in mind. The Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. Verse 48, for the Lord had spoken to Moses saying, only the tribe of Levi you shall not number. You might want to underline that. Nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel, but you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. By the way, let me just bring this up right here now. Since, since Levi is not even counted in the census, don't we have example in the scripture of God being opposed to a census? Do you remember the story with David? Yeah. And it's not a pretty picture. David tried, and by making a census of all the fighting men of Israel, same thing as we see in Numbers chapter 1, he brings a plague on the kingdom, a plague on the people. Because he does this thing. And you might read that and then look at this and go, well, wait a minute. What's, what's the difference? Even David's soul man, Captain Joab, said, this is a bad idea, king. But he did it anyway. Here's the deal. If God calls for a census, it is always about accountability and preparation. When man calls for a census, it is usually about pride, politics, popularity, and pomposity. It is all about the attitude. David was calling for a census, why? To see how strong he was. To see what a powerful king he was based on the fighting men of his army. Joab said, don't do it, captain of his army. He was warned against it, did it anyway. It was all pride and politics. But here, note this, after a God-ordained census, we see him say, do not number the tribe of Levi. Don't number the priests. Underscore that, don't number the priests. I would say it to you this way, don't number the fellowship of believers. Don't do that. Large or small, do you realize that the size of a church fellowship is irrelevant to the work of God here on earth? And that is not our purpose, to be the big church on the block or to be content being the little church on the block. When we number, we miss the point. It goes to our pride. It goes to our heads. Don't number the saved. Number the lost. If you're going to number anybody, number the lost. Understand, God's got the saved. The Lord adds day by day to the church, to the, sin, to, to the people, uh, those who are being saved. He knows. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. He makes the addition. He puts them all in that recorded book, the Lamb's book of life. He's got an accounting of the saved. I don't need to worry about that. I don't focus on how big a saved church can we be. Because the moment someone gets saved, they're his concern. Oh yeah, they're mine to love, don't get me wrong, and to stand with and to rejoice with, but not to count. Don't number the priests. God numbers the lost and calls us to do the same. I believe Luke chapter 15, Jesus told this parable saying, 
What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, I love this, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 megachurches. Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that, but you get the idea. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Hey, when we have a big turnout of church people on a Sunday morning, praise the Lord, we're all saved, and the songs are great, and I love the number of the saints. But it's just not my business to count them. So don't, don't number the priests. Don't count them. In verse 10 of Luke 15, Jesus said, I tell you in the same way there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And those are the numbers that matter. I remember back when we first planted, since I talked about this on Sunday, I'll mention this, when we first planted the Bridge Fellowship, and I remember meeting with different pastors and just talking about them, letting them know what, what I was doing. And we weren't here to try and, you know, glean off other churches. We were just here because we felt led and the Lord called us to be here. And I remember having the conversation with more than one pastor who was saying, now, now why are you there? Because, you know, we got churches here. And the conversation was out of, at that time, uh, about 20,000 or so people in Oak Harbor. I remember asking the question, how many people are going to church? How many people are saved? Now, I was numbering the priests, but understand where I'm going with this. How many people out of 20,000 are probably attending church in Oak Harbor proper, uh, and this was 17 and a half years ago? And we figured 1,500, maybe 2,000, which would leave 18,000 people out of fellowship. 18,000 potentially lost people. That's the number to be concerned with. And as long as there is even one or five or ten, or as is the reality, thousands of people in Oak Harbor and Accordus on the islands, then our reason for being here is to save the lost, to seek and to save the lost. Don't number the saved. Don't get all caught up in that. Don't number the priests. Number the lost. And back in Numbers chapter 1, verse 50, again, you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. Over all its furnishings, all that belongs to it, they shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall take care of this. And note this, they shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall take it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Note that, interesting. The sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Check that out. The Levites camped around the tabernacle. Of all the tribes of Israel, 13 of them, if you're thinking Ephraim and Manasseh of Joseph, of all the tribes of Israel, one got to camp closest, and it was Levi. The priests, right next to the outside of the tabernacle, all four sides, that was the camp of Levi. 
like a buffer zone for all of Israel. And honestly, y'all hadn't thought about it like this before. The priestly tribe of Levi was a buffer zone for Israel in the same way that the church is a restraining influence in the world. A buffer zone, if you will, against evil. 2 Thessalonians 2.7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And without getting all deep into that, I believe that's talking about the spirit in the church in the world, the restraining influence. And I point that out to say this, understand evil is not restrained by distance from God, but by nearness to him. That the buffer zone, the restraining influence there in the camp of Israel was Levi, and they were the ones closest to God, camping nearest to him. Now, where this breaks down a little bit is I'm not, I'm not calling Israel evil, just lost like the rest of the world around the church. But the church, to be effective, will not restrain evil by moving out farther away from the body of Christ, but coming near to Jesus. And the closer we are to him, the more our impact will be in this world. Joshua understood that. Joshua, one of the two greatest warriors in this season of Israel. Joshua and Mad Dog. We'll talk about them later. But Joshua understood Exodus 33, 11, when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You want to be ready for the battles in the wilderness? You want to be ready to fight when the time comes? You stay close to the tabernacle. You camp as near to God as possible. It is the best place to be in the wilderness, not out on the outskirts of the camp, but as close and as near to the heart of God as you can possibly get because the closer you are to Jesus, the more powerful you will be in this world. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. Get that. Those who are far from you are going to perish. Outskirts of camp, straying at the back of the pack, those are the ones in danger. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Psalm 73, 28, but as for me, it's my favorite line, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So stick close to Jesus. Close to the body of Christ, to the church. Camp out right there. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. This is so fascinating to me. Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies and the leader of the sons of Judah, Nachshon, the son of Amminadab, and his army, even their numbered men, 74,600. And those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar and the leader of the sons of Issachar, Netanel, the son of Zuar, and his army, even their numbered men, 54,500. And these numbers parallel, they're commensurate with the numbers in chapter 1. 
Then comes the tribe of Zebulun, and the leader of the sons of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Halan, and his army, even his numbered men, 57,400. So verse 9 says, the total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400 by their armies, and they shall set out first. This whole chapter now is about the organization of the Israelite campsites. And there are four campsites each which will hold, as we see, three tribes. Four campsites around the tabernacle, three tribes. Now remember, the tabernacle's in the middle. The Levites are camped around all four sides of the tabernacle. And now God's going to station the camps of Israel in four sections around the tabernacle. This is the organization. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, no group, I should say it like him, no group ever marched more orderly than this group. This is God's method. He is a God of order. I love Vernon McGee. This is God's method. What is? Organization. You stop and think about already how organized God is. Those who would claim 603,550, that's crazy. That would be confusion and chaos, not if the Lord's the leader. I mean, that's already answered in the first two chapters. He's organizing them by camps and stations and tribes and, and census to know where they are and what their place is and where they are to camp and how it's going to work, setting it all up, preparing them to head out. He is a God of order. And it reminds me that my darling wife, Cheryl, cannot rest when the home is in disarray. We were having some painting done in our living room and dining room and, and the house has been just a catastrophe the last week. She has not slept well. I came in the house today, everything's perfect. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> someone's going to get a good night's sleep. And I can relate because for me, I have a little saying, and you've heard it before, I'm sure, but I say this around the house many times when I see, oh, the kids' thing's a little out of place. There is a place for everything and everything in its place. And I like that. I like that organization when you can find things and you know where you left things. Well, God provides this. Orderliness in the wilderness. Because he knows that we do not rest well where there is confusion and clamor and chaos. We've talked a lot recently about Jesus saying, come to me, you who are, you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. But listen, as a condition of rest is organization. You rest better when things are not in chaos. It's why God organized his church, establishing elders, shepherds, leaders, and the way a church is to function. It's why he laid out the ordinances of the church. It's why he established a pattern even back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Four things, a very clear methodology for spirituality. God organizes his people. See, the church is not a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants spontaneity. Oh, there's spontaneity with the Spirit. And I understand that the Spirit, uh, like the wind that goes wherever it wishes, so is anyone who's born of the Spirit. But guess what? The Spirit is not just flying off the handle. The Spirit isn't just going this way and that way. And where's he going now? Well, I don't know. He doesn't even know. No, he knows exactly where he's going. We are on the wind. Sometimes we don't know where he's going, but he does. In fact, Jesus made it so clear. He said, I am the way. 
And so he's given us order and he's, he's given us not confusion. God is not a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, but a God of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 40, in all things, or all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And so with the church, as we are in the wilderness season, this is not time to run all helter-skelter, to get all freaked out. I've already had people to ask me, and listen to me on this, understand my heart when I say this, I've already had people say, how soon are we going to have to depart and just be in homes? Well, I mean, there have been seasons in the church where that kind of thing has had to happen. But I also know what the standard is. As we talked about Sunday, Acts chapter 2, they were meeting continually in the temple and house to house. It's both. And it is significant and it's important. This is not time for the church to shrink back into homes and hide away. Part, do you realize that part of our meeting is a public declaration? I mean, yeah, we come onto this property and we come into this building, but as we gather as a people in mass, like the first century church, in the temple, and you know what happened? Peter and John got arrested. You know what they did? They were told, don't speak in the name of Jesus. You know where they were the next day when they let them out? Back in the temple speaking in the name of Jesus. What if they had said, boy, you know, we've got some arrests under our belt, and it's getting a little dicey out here in Jerusalem. We better just pull back into houses. Let's just be a house church movement. I'm not opposed to house churches, brothers and sisters. And I'm not opposed to a group of people doing what they know God has called them to do, if in fact he's called them to do it. But I'll tell you this about house churches. There's one of two things that will happen with them. Either they will become a church fellowship, or they will eventually disband. They're not going to last, they may last a few years even. We need the organization that God, yes, organized religion. There, I said it. You believe in organized religion? Yeah, because God is not a God of confusion. He is an organized father. And he has a plan in place. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner because when there's, when there's order and when there's organization, there's rest. There's peace. So the first camp of the four, and there are four camps, 12 tribes, three tribes per camp. The first camp is the camp of Judah, and it includes Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. These three tribes are going to camp together, but note this, under the standard of Judah. The standard, the Daigle in the Hebrew. Daigle, not the Lauren Daigle, just the Daigle. The, the Hebrew word, which is standard in verse 3, 10, 18, and 25, the word is used four times because there's four camps, and each camp has a standard or literally a banner. So there's the banner of Judah, and the, the ancient rabbis taught that there was an actual banner up on a pole, the banner of Judah, and so all the people as they traveled, if you were in Judah, Issachar, or Zebulun, you knew when it was time to stop, you look for the banner, and that's where you camp. That's your campsite, that's your KOA site, if you will. And so everybody would gather there under the banner. And the banner of Judah, also note this, verse 9 says, Judah goes first. So they're all there camped around the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory of God, that cloud by day, that fire by night. One morning, all of a sudden, they see the cloud lifts and begins to move. Time to go. Levites do their work, they break down the tabernacle, all the portions, they cover everything up, they put it on the poles, and they begin, they get ready to go, and Judah moves first. 
In fact, there was an organization even to this moving out. Why did Judah go first? Why not Reuben? Reuben's the firstborn of Israel. Firstborn son. Yeah, until he lost it. Remember what old Jacob said, Genesis 49, verse 8? Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. And in that moment, old Jacob put Judah in first position, replacing Reuben. Even though Reuben was still the first one born, Judah is now in firstborn position. Receiving the inheritance of the firstborn, Judah goes first. Why? Because Reuben was as uncontrollable as water. Meaning what? Meaning he slept with his father's concubine. And you don't do that and expect to get your inheritance. Judah goes first. Note this also. It says, and it's so beautiful, they shall set out first, verse 9. Judah means praise. And it is always praise and worship that best leads the company through the wilderness. There's another principle for us, for the church in the wilderness. Praise and worship, folks. Praise and worship is vital. Praise is the best way to face hunger and drought and battles and snakes. By praise and by worship. 600 years after this, something really interesting happens. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. And he gets word that a combined coalition of Moabites and Ammonites is amassing at En Gedi, southeast of Jerusalem. And they're about to come on with a major surge, a major attack. And it's just the people in Jerusalem. Not even time to gather all the people of Judah. What are we going to do? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 14 says he, that Jehoshaphat calls for an assembly. He gets everybody in Jerusalem together. Gets them all praying and fasting before the Lord. And watch this. In the midst of the assembly, Second Chronicles 20, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours but God's. I love it. They're all praying, they're fasting, they're waiting on the Lord and they get answer. They get a prophetic word. So what happened? Down in verse 20, they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, put your trust in your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, this is the weirdest battle strategy ever, but it works. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. I would love to have seen that choir on that day. <laughs> the little choir robes, you know, going first. The army behind us? Give thanks. With a grateful heart. <laughs> Give thanks. I mean, can you imagine? You guys go first and you just praise the Lord right into the battle of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Wow. That's faith, my friends. But Jehoshaphat recognized worship 
praise goes first. When they began singing and praising the Lord, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and so they were routed. You know what happened? They all turned against each other and killed each other in the hills. So when the worship team comes walking around the corner, they're all dead. That's worship. That's worship that kills it, you know? Worship goes first. Praise goes first. Praise even unto war. That's how we fight. And by the way, in all this mention of battles and preparation for warfare in the wilderness, we fight differently. Prayer. The ministry of the word of God. Sticking close to Jesus in the tabernacle. And first and foremost, worship. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh. They're divinely powerful. For the destruction of fortresses, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Stack that up against the nuclear arsenals of the world and you might say, how can you possibly win that way? Same way Jehoshaphat's choir won on that day, by trusting in the Lord. We fight differently. Judah means praise. Praise goes first. They're the first ones to lead out the camp. And by the way, note this, Judah, whose name means praise, is on the east side of the tabernacle, the entrance. They're on the entrance side. Can I just ask you this? Do you come to worship already praising God? Or do you come halfway through fumbling with coffee and kids? And I'm not talking about on a Wednesday night when you're just breaking your neck just to get here from work and boy, God's gonna honor that. And I'm not talking about the occasional Sunday morning when you get out to the car and one of the kids left their shoes inside, you know. But I, I, I still think, and I say this with, with love and compassion, and deep understanding, because I've lived this for many years. I don't understand why we put worship in second position. Praise goes first. Praise goes first. You remember Les and Donna several years ago when we were back in the barn, we were doing a study through Psalms, and we decided, let's have a little fun. Let's study first and worship second. And we did that. And I said, for the whole study through Psalms, we're going to start, I'm going to, we're going to pray and open up with the word of God. We're going to study, go through the teaching, and then we're going to go into worship afterwards. It was amazing how many people were there right on time, especially after I called them out two or three times on a Sunday morning. Oh, hey, Johnson family, good to see you. <laughs> yeah, we're down in verse 7 now. Um, can you imagine? No, we had a good time with that, but, but we, we place such a premium, and I'm, I'm thankful for this. We place a premium on the word of God. What about the worship of God? The pattern is set in Scripture. Praise goes first. Praise is the highest of our priorities. This place ought to be, and yes, I'm using the word ought, and here comes a little guilt trip. Pack your bags. We're going into the wilderness. Praise and worship ought to be a first priority for us. And this building ought to be more full five minutes before we worship than it is at the end. Even if people are getting out early. Man, worship comes first. And if we're going to fight the battles that are coming to us in this wilderness, we have got to be a people who place a high premium on the worship of God. 
We need the clarity, by the way, that worship brings as battles come against the church. Verse 10. So verse 10 down through verse 33. I will do this very quickly. Hold on. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their armies. And it lists the names of these guys. Eliezer, the leader of the tribe of Reuben. And then the tribe of Shimon, verse 12. And Shalumiel, the leader of that tribe. And then Gad, in verse 14. And Eliasif, who's the leader of Gad. And so Reuben, Shimon, and Gad are the next camp group together. These three tribes... The total of the numbered men of the camp of Reuben, three tribes, verse 16, 151,450 by their armies, and they shall set out second. Praise goes first, and then Reuben will follow. And then, note this, in the middle, verse 17, the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps, just as they camp, so, that sh- so they shall set out every man in its place, in his place, by their standards. So as they set out and march forward, right in the heart, in the middle of the Israelites, remained the tabernacle. And that's where the Levites were as they marched forward. And then in verse 18, on the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim. And that includes Ephraim with Elishama. Verse 18, and Manasseh with Gamaliel in verse 20, and Benjamin with their leader Abidon in verse 22. And verse 24 says, the total of the numbered men of the camp of Ephraim, 108,100 by their armies, and they shall set out third. And then finally, verse 25, on the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their armies. And that includes Dan with Ahietzer, the, the leader. And then verse 27, Asher with Pagiel, the leader. And verse 29, Naphtali with Ahira, the leader. And the total, verse 31, of the numbered men of the camp of Dan was 157,600, and they shall set out last by their standards. So note that. On the east side of the tabernacle, first camp to go forward, Camp Judah. On the south side of the tabernacle, second camp to go, Camp Reuben. And then they're followed by Levi. And then on the west side, Camp Ephraim departs. And finally, the north side of the tabernacle is Camp Dan. And they're going to depart last. At the center, Camp Levi. On all four sides, continuing to march of the tabernacle. It's, it's, it's born, it's carried right in the middle of Levi. And note that, what a marvelous picture. Everything, even their marching and their camping was relative to the, ca- to the tabernacle. It was dead center. Whether traveling or resting, the tabernacle was at the heart of Israel. Now check this out. We're almost done. But uh, historically, Kyle and Delich confirm, according to rabbinical tradition, that each one of these camps had a banner, a daigle. Okay? And, and that daigle had an insignia. On it, there was an insignia, a standard for each one of the camps, a logo, if you will. Judah's was a lion. Reuben's was a man. Ephraim had a calf or an ox. And Dan's was a flying eagle. Let me say those again. Some of you already know where we're going. A lion, a man, a calf, an eagle. Four insignias. Same as the four faces of the cherubim. I mean, precisely. Ezekiel saw the cherubim, saw these heavenly beings and recognized they had four faces. But then John describes the four faces, although he only sees them from one view, 
So he thinks it's, it's four different, but they're, they're cherubim, so they're just all looking at him with a certain face. And John writes, Revelation 4, 6, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes. In front and behind, the first was like a lion. The second was like a calf. The third had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So the four camps of Israel around the tabernacle, these four insignias, the exact same as the faces of the cherubim in heaven. I, I find that fascinating. But don't stop there. It tells us something else. There's another tie-in here, a parallel to the four faces of the cherubim, and that is four Gospels. Matthew, Jesus the King, the Lion of Judah. Mark, Jesus the Servant, like the calf of Ephraim. Luke, Jesus is the Son of Man, like Camp Reuben, the man of Camp Reuben. And fourth, John, Jesus is God. And there's a representation there in the, in the flying eagle. Four gospels, four faces of the cherubim. And what's even more fascinating is you study this and look at it and think it through. And, and it checks out. That according to traditional ancient Eastern fashion, the camps would have been organized in rectangles out from the tabernacle. That is square to the tabernacle, not just loosely in big bunches, but, but camps that were square. We see this in ancient Egypt. We see it in, in several ancient cultures that when they marched out to war, they were squared out. Even Rome would later do that. And square to the tabernacle, if you note the numbers that were given to us, on the east side of the tabernacle, let's put the tabernacle here. On the, on the east side is the largest group that is Judah, 186,400. And then on the west side is the smallest group. That would be the camp of Ephraim, 108,100. Then on the south and the north sides of the tabernacle, you've got Reuben on the south, Dan on the north, 151,450, 157,600. So almost exact, real close in terms of numbering. Very similar on these sides, smaller on top, longer on the bottom. You know what, what I'm doing here? It's a cross. And, and what's fascinating to me is you think, well, who would see that? Well, aside from God, of course, would have that view. Numbers chapter 24, verse 2 tells us Balaam lifted up his eyes. He's up in a high mountain pass looking down. He saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came on him. And what I believe we can say that Balaam saw without understanding was all the camps of Israel in the shape of a massive wilderness cross. You know what's remarkable about that? Four faces of the cherubim, four gospels of Jesus Christ, camps in the shape even of a cross there in the wilderness. My friends, the cross was dead ahead. In fact, I'll put it to you this way. I believe it was the primary reason why God had to get Israel back into the promised land. Because there the son of David, of the line of the tribe of Judah, would one day, must one day, be crucified for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Romans 1.16. So that's, that's it. That's, that's how we get through the wilderness with a 603,550 
numbered men of the sons of Israel by their father's household, the total of the numbered men of the camps by their armies. And then verse 33, the Levites, however, were not numbered among the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's how you get through the wilderness. It's organized. There are battles ahead, but God prepares. He stands up those with whom you can fight. He sends praise and worship first. All of this is part and parcel of how you move through the wilderness ultimately toward the cross, and you do so, you do so with Jesus at the center of camp. Right in the middle, everything revolves around him. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And by the way, as long as we're there, in the breathtaking description of the new Jerusalem, the same idea is given. Oh, it's not in the shape of a cross. Actually, it's a massive, perfect cube. Revelation chapter 21, verse 16 says, the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as the width, and he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are all equal. He measured its walls, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which, by the way, are also angelic measurements, in case you were wondering. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Listen, New Jerusalem, in its description, 1,500 miles cubed, 600 stories high. It's a distance, think about it this way, it's a distance, and I shared this back when we studied these things, from Canada to Mexico and the Pacific Ocean out to Duluth, Minnesota, cubed. So that distance in width and in length and in height and in depth, that's New Jerusalem. It is a mass 3.375 billion square miles. <laughs> it's an area larger than the moon. That's no moon. That's New Jerusalem. It's huge. And if 20 billion people were saved, John, you got that. If 20 billion people were saved, think about this. That means each person would have a cubic block of 75 acres in New Jerusalem. It's huge. But the point is this. Revelation 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. As with the tabernacle in the wilderness, the Lord in the midst of his people. Which, by the way, is what the Bible tells us, what he has longed, where he has longed to be for the last 6,000 years of Earth's history. In the midst of of his people, and Song of Songs, chapter two, verse four says, he has brought me into his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. God at the center. Well, Numbers chapter two, verse 34, ends with one final verse. Thus the sons of Israel did, according to all the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out, everyone by his family, according to to his father's household. How much fun is taking a census? Now, now think about this. 
all that Moses had seen and done, all that Moses had experienced, all of the amazing, I mean, think about the power of the plagues. How cool was that? You want frogs? I'll give you frogs. I mean, the whole thing was remarkable. And then the wonder of walking the Red Sea and the taste of the manna and even the pageantry of the priesthood. I mean, a lot of impressive things were happening. And then God said, take a census, Moses. All right. <laughs> Where's my clipboard? Line them up. This will be great. I love that Numbers begins this way because it was just a task. There's nothing flashy about this. There's nothing exciting about this. There's nothing supernatural about this or spiritual about this. It's just a task given and received and finished. And that's what we see in the wilderness as well. It's not always battles. It's not always snakes. It's not always challenges. Sometimes it's just you got a clean camp. Sometimes it's just time to break down the tent. Sometimes it's just Line up, because the cloud is moving. A task finished. Hebrews 11 doesn't tell us, by faith, Moses counted the people. But he did. Faith is finishing the task. Life in the wilderness is not always exciting or hard or difficult. Sometimes life in the wilderness just is. So you need to be prepared for that as well. And the question is, can Jesus count on us even when the most menial of tasks are commanded? Will we be faithful to the simple stuff even as we are faithful when it's time to fight? Father, I, I ask that you make us faithful in the wilderness and in the days ahead and in the wanderings that we have. And the, Lord, I, would, I think of it as the final sanctification, the final preparation of readying your people and we put no time frame on that, Lord. We trust you for that. But we recognize wilderness days ahead. We've come through over the last year a wilderness experience that none of us ever expected. Locked down in our tents. <laughs> but Jesus, you are so good and so purposeful. And we know that nothing catches you off guard. Lord, as we learn from the people of Israel by their example, by the things set forth through them for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come, I ask that you will make us faithful. Faithful to the fight, faithful to the task, and faithful to be as close to you as possible. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.